0: Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another episode of the Surf and Sail podcast brought to you uh, by our November sponsors of Gong, Lead 411, lead 411, Vidyard, Findem and Perception Predict, all of which will help you in your uh, enterprise, startup, mid-market sales arena. So please check out our sponsors, we appreciate their support. And we are joined today by someone where it's really early in the morning, um, and his name is Hugo Robinson. Hugo is a sales leader over at WePloy. Um, and we'll have him jump into to what that is to give us some context. But uh, thanks for joining us, Hugo. And, and tell us, what is WePloy? What pain do you solve? Pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Um,
1: so WePloy is a, it's a digital marketplace of uh, customer service staff. And enterprise use the platform to engage the workers on demand to scale up and, and meet the market. Uh, the market change is required. So uh, it's kind of, you need to think about it like an Uber for jobs type of platform um, where we're live in Australia and New Zealand. So in the APAC region, um, we've been building the business for about four years now. And yeah, fortunately, we're working with some clients like Allianz and uh, Super Retail Groups so or some some really large organizations helping them solve their contingent workforce problems.
2: Is there, is there a big startup scene in, in Melbourne? where you are? Is that like the hotbed in uh, in ANZ?
1: Um, I'd say it's probably the hotbed but i I'd definitely call upon the Victorian government to invest a little more money in the ecosystem. Um, mm-hmm. There's a heap of innovation and ideas coming out of both Melbourne and Sydney and um, I'm actually from Perth on the west coast originally. Um, there's a there's a fair bit of activity happening there as well but um, we, we've actually seen recently the likes of Atlassian spin out a lot of I think there's probably six startups that have spun out of the Atlassian uh, ecosystem that have been funded by the founders there. Um, so yeah, I, I think Melbourne is a good place to be building a startup, but there's probably a lot more work to be done from a funding perspective and a support and you know incubation perspective.
2: But now you've spent your whole career <clears throat> um, in startups and, and kind of getting in on the ground floor, selling advancing into management and now running, you know, sales and, uh, and service team. What, uh, what's that, that process been like and, and what's been the attraction given that the startup scene is maybe, um, a little less developed or, or immature than, you know, say San Francisco or someplace like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, so I started my career with a, a really large company. Um, so they are the footy two hundred and fifty um, recruitment business based out of uh, London, but, obviously I was working in the Melbourne office and I I went through the grad program there. Um, and backstory on me, I, I spun out of uni, university, you guys call it college, we call it university here. Um, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I was quite a late bloomer and I didn't really have any focus on what I wanted to do after university, after I graduated. Sounds so like most people. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Like I kind of stumbled into sales and, um, fortunately enough for me. Um, so I started my career in, in recruitment and was just, I, I was a cog in a massive wheel. Um, you know, I, I joined this big business. They've been around for years. They've, they've got their systems, their processes, um, their formula, I think is a big one. Uh, so I came into this and um, just, I was really hungry to succeed from the word go. Um, luckily for me, I had a, a really good support network around me that enabled me to, Get the ball rolling pretty quickly and get some results on the board and um, and progress through the ranks pretty quickly and probably had a pretty promising career path in that organization. But I kind of reached a point where I was, you know, 24, so still really early days for me. But I I kind of saw the ceiling and I looked at I looked up um, at the people above me and they were more or less doing the same thing that I was doing, but just running a PL and for me, I wanted to be building something and, and not just being a, a cog in a big system. So um, at the time, our, our co-founder, Tony, um, he, he and I worked together at Page, and we were both trying to build startup businesses on the side. Um, but he started Weploy with with a goal to kind of automate recruitment, and the the vision just it resonated with me, and I obviously wanted to be building something and have a part to play in that. So joined joined as employee number two, and... Had no idea what I was doing, like what I was stepping into. Um, on reflection, I was—I <laughs> don't know how I succeeded in the early days, but I was very green and had no idea about building or um, even sales to a certain extent. Well, how so, did
2: how did you how did you learn? I mean, did you just learn by doing, or or did you start seeking out resources and
1: yeah, and, and, I think,
2: and relationships to kind of act as a guardrail for you?
1: Like I'm, I'm naturally a really curious person, um, but in the early days, it was very much by doing. I, I probably didn't seek out as much as I do now. Um, but then quickly realised that I'm not going to progress into, and, unless I immerse myself in knowledge and 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 immerse myself with other people who are doing, you know, successfully in this space. Um, and so probably I, I probably hit a point, I'd say the start of last year where. The penny kind of dropped and I realized that there's so much more <clears throat> so much more that I can be doing um and that's that's when I started to seek out the knowledge and guidance of
0: others so what are the things you did so like specifically so you recognize you were lacking here yep. so this is what I did one two three what are some things that you would give to people as, as best advice
1: um so the first thing I did was reflect um so look back at what I'm doing and some areas that I know that I can, that can improve. And, and at the time, I had a manager who kind of helped me a little bit understand those things. Um, so the first thing was reflect. The second thing I'd say was seeking out resources. So I've read a lot of books. Um, I, I read uh, Predictable Revenue. That was one of, the, one of the really good ones that helped me a lot. Um, and then I'd say I also just networked with people that had been there and done it for a while, um, so met some good people, uh, asked them how they've done it, asked them how they've navigated the challenges that they have.
0: And, and that kind of helped me a lot. Did you? What other kinds of people did you reach out to outside of your own organization, right? Like who did you, you know, what kind of folks did, do you, did you have and need, now do you officially have like a mentor or mentors? Like what are you doing now? Um, I, I wouldn't say I have an official
1: mentor, but I, I, Spent a lot of time reaching out to sales leaders, people who had built businesses like Slack um, in the past, and and also people that consult in sales. Um, so Richard, you, you probably would have been a good one <laughs> had you been local. But um, a guy called Graham Hawkins from Sales Tribe has been uh, a good, you know, quasi mentor, but just helped me understand a lot of things. Um, and then also people that have built businesses. So it's not just, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a belief that everyone is a salesperson. And if you're building a business, then sales is one of those, those critical ingredients to building the right recipe. Um, and so people that have successfully scaled a business um, in the consulting arena or in the product arena, doesn't matter, um, there's some fundamental building blocks that, that they have to pass on.
0: That's awesome. What, um, what are the things that you learned from these people? Like, what are the things that you went, oh, wow. Like I, Scott and I have these conversations where we we talk about something and we're like, wow, people still don't know that. And then we have to realize like that's just the vision because we've been through it so much more. Um, but what are the things that you've been learning through this entire, through your learning experience?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot. I'd say probably the biggest awakening moment for me was realizing that there's, there's kind of this incong- incongruency between what you know and what you think and then what buyers know and, and what they think so what i mean by that is in the early days we we were just infatuated with the vision of our product and we thought that we had this amazing on-demand staffing platform that was just going to solve all of these critical workforce challenges and we i wouldn't say we, we approached it arrogantly but we probably had the belief that people should understand this a lot easier than they do but the reality is that people have so many issues in their day-to-day lives that the last thing they're thinking about is your product or service and unless you can position it right understand the buyer understand their challenges you're just not going to have a solution even if it's the prettiest thing that that works Um, and so for me like when I took over as sales leader about a year ago I what I realized was that we we didn't we hadn't done the work to understand our customer profile and we didn't know what their challenges were. We didn't know why they bought or what they bought. And we we were kind of pushing a product that didn't match the need. Um, And so doing the work with the team to just crystallize everything down to something really simple um, and easy to understand, but also hitting a a pain point for the buyer just changed everything. So um, hopefully that makes some sense to you. Oh, for, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. How, how are you... Are you selling globally or just in, in APAC?
1: Just in APAC. Um, so we've just gone live with a client in New Zealand, but it's predominantly been Melbourne and Sydney the last couple of years. And we've also just piloted Brisbane. So you guys probably don't know these areas, by the way. But uh, yeah, just the states across Australia. And then, yeah, recently it's New Zealand.
2: Gotcha. Now, I was, I was wondering because I know a number of people who sell into, into APAC and I'm curious what you think the, the differences are there between selling into APAC versus selling into um, Europe or, or the Americas and different places like that.
1: Yeah, I personally I wouldn't understand because I haven't done it, but from what I've heard um, Australian buyers are incredibly risk averse and not, not willing to give things a go. I've heard that you American folks <laughs> love to give things a go and love to experiment and just move a lot quicker than we
2: yeah. do here. All the I think all you're on mute, our,
1: Richard. <laughs> all of our all of our listeners
2: in America right now are like, wait, what? Buyers. Uh, what we, would ever give we, you that we,
0: idea? <laughs> what ever would give you that idea, Hugo? That's that's pretty <laughs> spot on, my man. That's pretty spot on. Yeah.
2: I I, I did a uh, a session, oh I don't know, a few months ago with a, uh, couple hundred sellers from New Zealand and Australia. And and one of the things that I was getting asked about a lot was just like modern kind of selling tactics that we use in America. And and the folks that were on this particular meeting and call felt like they were behind the times a little bit and weren't utilizing some of these methodologies and strategies. Um, do you find that that to be the case? And, and if so, you know, what do you think's behind that? Is does that speak to kind of everybody being a little bit more risk at first, maybe to try something new?
1: It's a really good question. I think I agree with you in the sense that I, f- I feel like the Australian market, um where we, we don't try new technology. So a lot of the sales tech, the sales enablement tech comes out of America and probably comes out of the UK as well. Um, So we're probably quite late to adopt these things, but I I have the belief that the tech is not, the tech is the enabler. The process is what is, is what really matters. Um, And I feel like there's a lot of us vendors that come in and make a home in Australia that do, The process really well they're quite structured and quite regimented they know what works they've got the formula Um, whereas Australian companies that are building there's probably not that knowledge and and that's where the investment that I made in just listening to podcasts like yours connecting with people from overseas um, that was when I started that's when the penny started to drop and I started to you know become aware of how the sales process really needs to happen and yeah, I, I would agree that in, in Australia, um, unless you're coming from an overseas vendor, you're probably not getting that, um, that process drilled into you from an early stage. It's very much just, you know, fire a lot of bullets at a wall and hope, hope one sticks,
0: um, for lack of a better term. That's awesome. We want to we want to pivot. Um, the first thing we want to do is figure out how to get WePloy to sponsor our surf and sales visit to Australia. So we want to make sure we cover <laughs> that. Yeah,
2: surf and, surf and goals sales uh, Australia version.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, you could be the honorary guest. Um, but on a, on a more serious note, before we started, you know, you said you had questions for us, and we usually sort of wait till the end to let to to have someone ask us a question. But it seems like you had a couple, so we wanted to sort of give you the mic to ask some questions that would be supportive to the folks who are listening to this, uh, particularly in your, in your market, certainly our listeners, but hopefully answer some questions for, for your folks.
1: Um, Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I I probably, I didn't come prepared with too many questions, but I think naturally the the reason that we're obviously connected today is I reached out to um, Scott a couple of months ago, because as I've, as I've touched on, the, a, a big part of me a big part of my success has been um, being able to learn from people. And, and I think in this, in startups in particular, there's so many questions you have that don't necessarily have easy to find answers. And there was a few times there was guests on, on the podcast and, you know, amazing guests that have done incredible things, but there was a few questions that were asked that my ears pricked up and I'm like, Oh, that's, that's what I've been trying to figure out. And the answer's, weren't quite what I was hoping for. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said about you know, how we ask questions and and also how we go about answering questions and and the active listening part of things. But um, kind of getting a bit derailed here. But I guess Scott, um, for you, you know, working with so many early stage um, sales leaders and and companies, and you're, I'd say, you're a builder as well, right? Like, yeah. what what do you think are the most important things to Uh, to bed down in your early sales strategy, I guess.
2: Well, I mean, number one, creating an actual sales strategy. I mean, you'd be surprised to learn and hear how many people don't have one. I I had a conversation a couple hours ago with a a guy who um, works for a fairly large company doing millions and millions of dollars in revenue but uses an old antiquated kind of um, tribal knowledge process. And so that's been massively disrupted from COVID and their inability to travel. And so they've struggled to adjust. And, you know, to Richard's point earlier about sometimes like the things that seem normal and natural to us, other people don't know. I mean, one of his big takeaways from my conversation with him was like, I got to get this stuff out of my head and onto paper. And, and, you know, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yes, that's what you need to, you need to do. So just dedicating yourself to putting the time in to create and build a process that is repeatable, that is scalable, that utilizes the right tools that gets the messaging done right. Um, that, that is the most important thing you can do in a, in a leadership position. Uh, in an early kind of stage startup like you're in right now. And so hopefully you've, you've managed to do all of the things that, you know, I'm thinking of in, in my head and dive in and get specific so you can teach those things. And so new people who enter your organization
1: uh, can pick them up and run with them straight away. That is, that is such an important point. <clears throat> and that's something that I've like, to be honest with you, I've, I've really struggled with and I've had to, put the hard yards in to be able to do that because I've, I've somehow been able to have some success and, and thinking about how I've been able to have some success um, is, is often the challenge. Like how do I, how do I get that formula or get that knowledge or get that process, whatever the, whatever the thing is, put it on paper and, and enable others to do the same, create yeah. that repeatable engine.
2: Richard, why don't you speak to that? Because um... I mean, look, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So of course you're going to be able to just randomly go about and close deals here and there and get some success. But like, like Hugo was saying, he's kind of struggling to sort out, well, what did I do that, that worked and how do I define this? You got to take yourself off mute
0: before you go. That was Scott's early Hanukkah present because I tend to be, it's been a while since I've done that. So, um. The, you know, the first thing that I do, if you're asking tactically how to do it, is I just tell people to throw up on paper. I think so often we try to get stuff out of our head in an organized format. When in fact, it doesn't need to be organized. Just start writing, just start going, oh, I need to have this conversation about the competition, or I need to have this conversation, whatever comes out. And then once it's on paper, it becomes much more easy for you to digest. You can see the whole vision, right? Um, and a, it, it's interesting to see that piece come out. That's that's one of the first things I do. I think the other thing to do is to ask someone else, right? I'm, I'm pretty notorious to come to Scott for, okay, Scott, I'm missing something here. What what am I missing? Because I think sometimes we can't see, you know, our own forest for the trees, right? We're so knee deep in it, we can't work our way out. And Scott can pull me out um, and, and vice versa. It happens a little bit more. I mean, a little bit more with me to Scott than Scott to me. but. Those are the things. And I think you, and it goes back to what you said earlier, which is your natural curiosity, right? What you know, versus what you think, you know, and, you know, sort of realizing that I need to stop thinking I know this and I need to test myself. Do I, do I really know this? Like, or do I not? And I think those are the things that I sort of encourage people to think about and and try to look at it.
2: You know, one, one thing for you to think about too, Hugo is, um, it's not really about whether or not you're able to experience some level and modicum of success. If, if you're, if you're in an environment where your job is to grow and build a huge scalable sales organization, your job is to figure out what will work for the masses, not for Hugo. It, right. If, if that makes sense. Cause like I, I can wing things. And Richard would tell you that the way I run my business right now, like, I would never do if I was running a larger business and I'm a mess in certain, certain places. But <clears throat> if I go into, a, a, into WePoi and I'm having some success, and even if I have a couple hundred thousand dollars of ARR or whatnot, and I'm the individual contributor selling, it, it's not about what works for me. It's like, how many people will be able to replicate whatever it is I'm doing? One, five, 10, 50, 100? And most people are not going to be as good as you. And most people are not going to care as much as you. So you take what's working for you and you're like, man, I have to dumb this down in order for some other people to pick up on it. And I have to imagine other people are not going to make, you know, 50 calls a day. Other people are going to make 20 calls a day. And you, have, you keep refining things. So you're building not with Hugo in mind. You're building for Hugo's future team in mind. And, and simplifying everything in such a way that all these other people will be able to pick it up. That's what will, will make you and your organization
1: great. Yeah, I love it. I especially love the point about not everyone's gonna care as much. I think you. I, I naturally had this mindset that because I because I love this business so much and I believe so much in the vision and I, I want more than anything to create a, a, a winning, um, you know, winning business, ultimately, everyone else should have that same mindset. And the reality is that that they don't, you know, everyone's got, what what matters to everyone is, is different from person to person. Um, and for some people, work is a means to an end. For others, work is an opportunity to build something great. And I fit into that second bucket, but a lot of people fit into the former. Um, and for me, yeah, I've probably overcomplicated things. I've probably realized that, I probably haven't realized, sorry, that, people need things dumbed down to the minimum viable level um, to be able to understand and do. And um, yeah, I've probably spent a little bit too much time as Richard alluded to uh, sitting, sitting there with a piece of paper and trying to put things out into a, into a perfect formula um, rather than just blurting things out and getting it onto the paper and then, you know, getting the the formula and the process involved
0: from there. Um, So yeah, really, really good tips. So I'll, I'll give you the piece of advice Scott gave me. It was about delegation, but I think it's the same thing. Whatever you spit out on the paper the first time, just assume it's about 20% accurate in terms of the process side of it, right? Like because you know something's in there in the right spot. But then you're going to refine it and you're going to get to 60% and 80%, and 100% percent. And you know, even even if you don't get to 100%, you don't need to right? The goal of the process, the goal of what you're trying to teach just needs to be better than it was. And in two yep. or three months, you'll make it even better than that version, right? So that's, that's sort of my advice. Stop, stop. you know. And it's hard for me because Scott calls me on it all the time. You know, stop being perfect. Stop trying to be perfect. Um, yeah. start being, and I think that's a really important piece. So. Done is better than perfect. Yeah. What What yeah. else can we answer for you? What other kind of questions do you have? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite curious
1: about the, um, like the mode of engagement at the moment. So I, am a big believer that LinkedIn is probably the best channel, uh, well, particularly for my market, but for a lot of B2B, uh, companies at the moment to engage buyers. Um, there's a lot of debate about phone versus email versus LinkedIn. So all the channels that are having most success, what do you guys think about this and and how should people be, um, thinking about, the activity they do and um, how
0: much time they should be allocating to each channel. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I'll I'll go ahead. So, you know, I mean, I think LinkedIn is a must um, and it has less to do with just your sales. It has more to do with your own career growth, right? So when you're posting, yes, you are certainly trying to throw some lines out there in terms of trying to attract customers. Um, But I also think it's about your career growth so that people can see you because we all know at this point, particularly in sales, um, particularly in the startup world, everybody's gonna go check your profile out on LinkedIn and they should be looking at how often you're engaging. And that's a really important piece. So LinkedIn is is definitely a huge piece of it. In terms of how important it is, I mean, the entire surf and sales business model and brand was built off LinkedIn, was literally Scott and I on vacation. He then came back and threw out this idea. People said yes, and we threw it together. And I think we had our first one. Do we do the first one? Certainly within four months, but it might've been within 90 days, right? Like it was, it was in May. And I think we decided January or February to do oh, it.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: right? quick. And, and so like LinkedIn is hypercritical In the business world, in the sales world, in the marketing world, like, you know, if you're a doctor, I don't know, and it may not be, if you're a lawyer, maybe, I don't know. I don't don't spend time in those channels, but, um, so I think LinkedIn's priority one, I've been toying with Instagram a little bit and have some stuff going up every now and then I actually got my first Instagram lead last week, which I was like, holy cow, um, um, you know, I haven't had the conversation yet, but I, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, this shit works. Um, (laughs) But I think you pick one channel and you master it. And I think that LinkedIn is particularly in sales. That's the place you go and you master it. And it just takes, you know, unless you get lucky, it takes you a year to figure it out. And I think you need to focus on like, it's just about the long tail play. So I'll let Scott jump in.
2: Uh, My answer is a little bit different to be honest with you. I, I think you need to be experimenting with all the different things all the time. And and what, what I mean by that is you should work on your phone skills and, and your prospecting and and measure the results there. You should do the same with email. You should do the same with social, with LinkedIn. You should do the same with video prospecting if that's something that um, you're, you're able to do and make sense with your organization. And then you just optimize based on what brings you the best results. So I, I don't know what those would be for, for Weploy, and, and I wouldn't care if I was the sales leader, I would just look at the data and the data would tell me, well, the phone is like almost a waste of time for us, but LinkedIn is massive or the inverse of that, you know, video, nobody responds to our video messages, but everybody picks up the phone. And so if, if that's the case, I just have my team lean heavily into whatever channel is working the best. Right. And, and I don't, I don't know any other way to do that than to give every single channel a go and measure the the results from there and make sure that we're giving all of them a go properly, right, like not just doing videos and doing them terribly and then saying, oh, the videos don't work. No, learn how to do videos properly, do them and then look at the results. Don't jump on the phones having no idea what you're supposed to do and then say, oh, the telephone doesn't work for us. No, your sales team needs sales skills and the right kind of messaging and, and, and so forth. So that, the, the people that I know that are in sales organizations having the most success right now are utilizing all the channels and looking at the data all the time and optimizing for what's working the best. And that's what I would encourage you, know, you and, and your team to, to do.
1: Yeah, I like it. I like the um, the experimentation element. Um, what what about how does that change when you factor in team size? So, for example, if you have a really small team of um, tactical doers, do you err on the side of um, caution when it comes to things that aren't necessarily scalable? So, shooting personalized videos, um, or does it still does the the rule still apply that whatever's the most effective, just keep doing that?
2: I think whatever's the most effective, you keep doing that. And I would argue that personalized, personalized videos are scalable. There's no, there's no reason for them not to be scalable. You could have a team of 500 people doing personalized videos. I think maybe the degree of personalization matters and changes. You shouldn't spend five hours maybe shooting a video, right? And the videos don't need to be five minutes long. They can be 45 seconds long and still be effective. Um, I think the easiest time to experiment with all this stuff is when you're small. This is the time that you should be optimizing for learning and figuring these things out. It's way harder to kind of adjust and tweak and change strategies and learn when you've already got 100 salespeople on the floor, right? Now is the perfect time to experiment with this stuff. What, What do you think, Richard?
0: So I think that you know, specific to video, that is scale. And I think we have to actually redefine the definition of scale. Everybody's been drinking this Kool-Aid that scale means more, bigger, right? A hundred, you know, a hundred versus 10, scale means you know, a thousand versus a hundred. When in fact, no, scale means what's the most effective and the data tells us, not how many you can do, right? Everybody wants to be you know, better, faster and cheaper. And they can only do two of the three. And if you're going to do video just in this one experiment, then, you know, that's better, faster and cheaper. Because even if you can only get 10 30 second videos done a day, well, that's 50 in the week. And then you can at least figure out, well, did that work? Right. How much time should I be spending on that versus can I send out, you know, 500 emails in a week and then I just burn that runway? That's not scale. That's that's the opposite of scale. So I think you have to redefine scale in the first place. And I agree with Scott that you're always experimenting and um, you, know, you experiment in very mindful ways, right? You experiment by saying, hey, we're not gonna ch- go start this experiment until we make sure one or two things happen today or yesterday or this week, so that we don't dig ourselves into a hole for the week, right? You sort of build on success. Um, and so there's lots of ways to do it, but you, you need to try that. And I also think you kind of have to look at, you know, the people you have, go do it. The people on your team, who wants to practice this? Great. Go, go write me a 100-word one-pager on how you're going to do it and what research you're going to do before you actually do anything. Like, t- to your point, teach them how to be curious because they can go out and make video. Yeah, I'll go do a video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Somebody's probably written about this like why do not we go educate ourselves a little bit um and scott may disagree with that part he may just say fuck it and go for it but
2: um no i don't disagree with that at all i i I don't disagree with that at all i just think that um to our point earlier it just just needs to be good enough and go it doesn't need to be be perfect Um, yeah it just needs to be good enough to make some progress
1: i think there's, there's something to be said and i think richard you um you put it really nicely there to redefine scale it's the way I think about this, it's outcome versus output. You know, a lot of people, a lot of sales organizations are so focused on output and getting those numbers of calls up, getting those number of emails out, enrolling everyone in a sequence. But what what we're kind of doing in that process is just burning the opportunity to sell to people and, and build value and credibility with people. Because it, I know f- for me in particular, um, I receive who knows how many emails a day and like, I find it really interesting seeing how other salespeople approach outreach. The majority of it is absolute garbage. And it, it makes me kind of crawl in my skin um, a little bit when I, when I see these things. And, and knowing that, you know, for a, a part of the year, earlier this year, um, I had my team sort of focusing on um, a lot of, you know, volume outbound and probably more automation than, than, um, than we probably should have been doing you know, seeing, seeing what that does and the impression that leaves on buyers or receivers of that email. Um, just, it really goes to show that personalization wins and yes, yeah, scale is not the number of outreach. It's the, I guess, the impact on the person that's, um, that's receiving that. And, and I guess if you're going to get more intent versus interest, um, then it's going to be a, a winner in the long-term. Yeah. I think
0: scale is about, I mean, I was just sort of typing this is that scale is to me is like, it's the definition of input to outcomes, right? Not input to output. Right. Correct. Yeah. And I think for me, that's sort of a nuance, but that's how I see it.
2: You know, yep. well, you said something interesting about all the messages that you get and a lot of them are garbage and all this kind of stuff. Um, I get God knows how many as well and, and, and did when I was, uh, working for, for a company, but I, just earlier today, I took two emails that um, one of my clients had, had received and used it as an opportunity to dissect these emails with my client to show them what was good, what was bad, what might work, and how we could incorporate it into our own messaging as we build out our outreach strategy right? So you can take those messages that you're receiving, do a quick little, you know, get out your red pen, right? Send them to your team and be like, Hey team, this is why this particular message sucked. Like, look, look what they did here. Look what's wrong here. Here's a different message. Look at this one. This one has a nice subject line. It's actually interesting. Here's what's good about this one. And you and use everybody's mistakes and the things they're doing right. And use all the things coming to your inbox uh you know as a force for good like as a training mechanism for you and you can repurpose some of those things some, some of them are not all that bad and you can take you know an idea here a fraction of this one here and boom there's your next you know email that you're gonna you're gonna send and, and test out so they're actually creating things for you if you want um so there's something there's something to be said for looking into that i guess is what i'm getting at you go
1: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really good exercise. And in the early days, especially Tony, who's our, our co-founder, um, he and I used to bounce those emails back, um, back and forth between each other and just, you know, like, what do you like about this? What, what's missing from this, that type of stuff.
0: So yeah, really good tip.
2: So,
0: so let me ask you this, right? So you get these answers. I think this happens to everybody. You get this advice from people, whether it's, you know, direct one-on-one through your research or, hey, we sort of turned the mic over to you. What are you going to walk out of here with and do? Like, how are you going to take this information and sort of think about it, implement it? Or, or is it that, ah, they didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. It just sort of confirms my beliefs, which is okay. Like it's, That just tells you you've got that covered. Now you can go find other problems to to work on. But what are you going to do walking out of this? And in general, what do you do when you learn new ideas to make sure you're being... How do you hold yourself accountable? That's the question. Took me six questions to get there, but that's the question. It's a good question. Um, So the reality of this
1: situation for us at the moment is we, unfortunately, due to COVID, had to downsize dramatically. So we had a team of... Uh, of five at the time, and we had two offers out for new account execs, um, which we had to rescind at the start of COVID. So there's a team of just two, so myself and one one other at the moment. Um, but even with a team of two, there's there's a lot of areas for opportunity um, that we can be that we're not necessarily taking advantage of. Um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to advance the way that we sell, and we're kind of we're both just so deep in the weeds at the moment that we're not really taking the time to to look at improvement. So I think this conversation has really sparked, um, like re really sparked my desire to get back to process improvement and to analyzing what we're doing and and really trying to seek out those better results. Um, but from a the, the question you actually, because I'm, I'm just conscious I didn't really answer your question there, what I do to, to hold myself accountable. Um, I use uh, a tool called Asana, which I find is a pretty effective way to essentially project manage my work life. Um, I I do personal stuff on there as well, but, um, I set myself tasks and due dates and and rank them in order of priority. And this isn't going to work for everyone, but I, I make a conscious effort to get to the things that are most important and most pressing. Um, and, and I guess that's
0: the way that I hold myself accountable. So it's through a, through a tool. That's really good. I, I am curious, how do you determine what's urgent or important or both?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really what's going to have the most impact. Um, or impact, how, as...
2: impact impacts emotionally on morale, economic impact, as Richard likes <laughs> to use, right? And is it near-term impact versus long-term impact? Because one of the things <laughs> that sales leaders get sucked into the trap of is focusing only on what's going to bring them dollars today. And when you think that way, you neglect all of these things that bring would bring even more value in terms of revenue and growth in the organization um, that maybe don't have dollars today kind of impact, but have a dollars next week or next month kind of thing. So you, you want to think about how you're going to analyze those things and and your decision-making process therein
1: it's a really good point and it's probably something that i haven't thought thought about um, to that extent like what would your suggestions be for that about how to rank things
2: richard you are not in your head
1: let's spin it around
2: you're on you're on mute. <laughs>
0: Rephrase, you in hot rephrase the question because I was taking a note on what you would said along that point. So rephrase that real quick.
2: He wants help on in terms of of ranking and and, and prioritizing, right? Near term yeah. impact, long term impact. How do you know which one to go for and why? I,
0: I, I struggle with this, which is why Scott made me answer first. Which is good. Like this is an experiment, right? Um, I always have a to do list, right? Like that's the most important thing. I've gotten better this year of um, recognizing, oh, I need to get this quote out to somebody. I don't need to do that right now. I can do that while I'm like hanging out at night watching TV or I can, you know, it's, you know, unless it's a huge one and I've committed to a certain deadline. So um, those kinds of things I can pause um, so that then I could focus on something else that might be more of a long-term strategy. I also do a lot of time blocking in my day. So I time block out when I'm going to write blog posts. I time block out when I'm working on an ebook. I time block out, um, obviously, the the podcast, um, and I also time block out dead time. I specifically, you know, from twelve to one every day is marked as lunch, so that nobody can come and steal that time from me, on my on myself. So then I can reprioritize what I need to do the rest of the day. So I try to do, and ultimately, I try to do one short-term thing a day and one long-term thing a day and then anything else around it. Right. That's sort of how I've had to adjust myself in my mindset to get it done.
2: Richard is way better at the time blocking thing than me. Since I spend every noon to 2 PM recording surf and sales podcast episodes. Meanwhile, Richard can eat his lunch peacefully. Uh, if, if I'm you, if I'm you, Hugo, um, it's counterintuitive, but like when I first get into an organization, I stay away from things as much as I can that are only near term value. And I spend more of my time trying to focus on things that we will ultimately need at a larger scale. So if I, if I was to go into your organization right now, the first thing that I do is build out the sales playbook. And I could give two shits about whether we close a deal today or not. And that's counterintuitive for for most people. I care only about setting things up in such a way that will yield us the most revenue and team growth down the road, not what's going to make an impact today. Um, And in doing so, you decrease the amount of like selling debt and technical debt that you accrue because the longer you put that off, the more complicated it is and the harder it is to step off the the hamster wheel, if you will, of needing to close X number of sales today, right? So it's about managing the expectations a little bit above you and, and getting some breathing room so, so you have the time to invest on setting things up right and at scale as you, uh, as you grow.
0: I talk about it all the time of like, everybody wants to be better, faster, and cheaper, and they can only do two of the three. Right, and if you're going to be better, faster, and cheaper, then you have to focus on more long-term priorities. Because cheaper often means it takes six months. Right, um, you know, you could go hire two hundred people to be your sales org and think that you're scaling. It's like, well, wait a minute, why don't I hire ten, put some tech in, and see if they could get to the equivalent of a hundred, right? And look at what that does for me long-term. And you know, in two months, I need to go hire. 10 or 20 or 30 more to get to that 200. So be it, you know, I still save us a ton of just dead salary money,
1: you know? So, yeah. I think there's, there's one other thing that I'd add. I think thinking about this a lot in, in my situation, um, I think you also like, I also need to think more about what are the things that I can add the most value to what are the things that where is my time going to have the most impact? So, for example, if there's tasks if there's tasks competing for my time and my strength is um, is way more suited to one of the tasks versus the other, um, then there's something to be said about spending the time on the thing that's going to have the most benefit from, you know, you sinking your time into that, even if it's not the most pressing priority. Do, do you agree or disagree with that?
2: I don't know if I've I that very well, but... I agree. I agree to an extent. This is one of the, this is something that I think that I've become pretty good at. Like I'm really good. I think at delegating stuff off things that I don't like doing, or I'm not very good at, or don't know how and don't want to spend the time learning to do. And I dive deep into the tasks and activities for me that I am good at and that I can do really fast and really effectively. So I I think what happens is it, it, gives off some sense of illusion almost that I'm more productive maybe than, than some folks might be. I'm getting done all of these things in the foreground that I'm working on. And in the background, all these other things are being worked on. Whereas if I was just slogging away myself, trying to figure out all this stuff that I suck at and don't enjoy, it's just gonna slow me down. I lose momentum. I get frustrated. These other tasks don't get done. So I I just kind of like to siphon stuff off, even if it comes back to me at like 60, 70% quality, that's good enough for me in order to like fill in the rest of the gaps. Right. So if if I was, if Richard and I were going to write a blog post or something, right. I'll say, Richard, why don't you get it started?
0: And he does this by the way. (laughs)
2: Richard, why don't you get it started, right? And, it, and I know it's gonna come back to me like you know 80% or something like that in terms of how, how I would want it. And but it's hard for me to get started with that stuff. I don't like getting started with that kind of, of uh, article, like deadline lingering over me. But once I have some draft in my hands, I can move very quickly and the thoughts just, just come. And so that's an example of me just like, managing my time and on some level like understanding the resources that are available to me. Right. And I, Richard, you can add, add to that.
0: Yeah, I will, but I'm going to do, you know, what you're supposed to do, right. I'm going to have my Ryan Seacrest moment and thank our sponsors of gone.io, lead 411 vidyard find them in perception predict as we appreciate their support in the month of November. But uh, Scott's very good at this. It's been a natural ability of his it he does have i don't know if you know what it is from seinfeld but he has the kvorka where he people gravitate to scott in a unique way and they want to do things for him i remember when i first met scott i was the same way i was like there's something about this guy i just like him and i want to help him and he's going to help me and all this stuff and it's he's not doing it in a manipulative way but i think that he's gotten really really good at it and he's been good at teaching me how to do it so um so i i gravitate to scott's thoughts on this a whole lot more than i do my own and that's where i've learned a lot so and then i did come in and be more on the structure side of things on on that side and i think that's where you know we balance each other out And i'm like dude you got to do this by a certain time so yin and yang it's a good partnership
2: yeah so you got to seek out resources around you in relationships or colleagues that can complement you in this particular way and as you go about building and growing your organization and hiring, some of your hiring decisions should be thought of in terms of, oh, this person compliments me in a great way. They're really strong at something I suck at. And that that will help you be stronger as you grow.
0: I like it a lot. Well, this is, uh, that time where we got to sort of wrap it up, but, um, this has been fun, Hugo, we appreciate it. Cause it's, you know, you got to turn it around on us a little bit and, and ask us for some things as
2: a different, this is a different kind of podcast
0: episode, Yeah, definitely, definitely. Which really appreciate. So, um, by all means, Hugo, let us know when, um, we can come down to Australia, what's the best time to come for surfing. And, uh, although Scott probably already knows, um, and help us find the right spot. We should do a we should do a retreat in southwest Australia. I don't know if you if you
1: two have heard of Margaret River, but world class breaks, great wineries. Um, there's a, a chocolate factory as well. I think that would be an awesome spot
0: for a um, for a cheeky little gallivant.
2: I'm 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 sold already.
1: I'm in.
0: I'm in. I'm checking my frequent flyer miles right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. You sure. we really appreciate Thanks, it, guys. See ya. See ya.